0: The central bank can control the supply of its currency. It cannot make people value it. And if I know that the central bank can print trillions of dollars at zero cost, I will stop valuing that, as will everyone.
1: Hello there from Boston. How are you? It is so good to be back traveling. I had a great couple of days down in Texas. Managed to see some of the Bitcoin crowd down at BitBlock Boom. And then I came up here to Massachusetts to watch The Ghost Inside play their first show since covid Now I am about to jump on a plane to El Salvador. I'm going to make a film about Bitcoin. It is very exciting times. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got an interview with Parker Lewis, part four of our Gradually Then Suddenly series, looking at the implications of the money printer. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. And first up today, we're going to kick off with Exodus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for Bitcoin. And do you know what, I'm going to be using it in El Salvador over the next few days, because I use it to go and access cash from the ATM down in El Zonte. Now, some of you know, UX is super important to me. So when Exodus reached out to me, I spent some time playing with the app. And do you know what, they crushed it the experience is so cool that I'm happy to recommend it to you, my friends, and my family. Now Exodus Desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send a receive safely using a QR code or address knowing that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So make sure you check it yourself out at Exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. And next up, we have up which is the safest way for you to store your Bitcoin. Now, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, and phishing attacks, there are way too many ways for you to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with a Casa multi-sig wallet, you can custody your Bitcoin, but you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets. And these are wallets you get to distribute into different locations, protecting you from a range of mistakes errors and vulnerabilities. Now, I have been a customer for about a year now, so if you've got any questions about this, you can hit me up on my email or drop me a DM on Twitter. There's never been a better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is key dot C-A-S-A. Also, let's talk about sportsbet.io, which is the very best place for online gaming because they accept Bitcoin. And now with the football season back going, which is so great, so great to have football back, But it has been a strange start. Tottenham winning their first three games. Like what? How did that happen? Manage the odds. It managed the odds you would have got on that. So now sportsbet.io has got you covered. Not just with football. They support tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even have esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Okay, so on to the show, and today I have my buddy Parker Lewis back on the show to finish up our Gradually Then Suddenly series, and this time we finally got to sit down and do it in person. Now, a few days ago, I was down in Texas for Bitblock Boom, and we managed to find some time to sit down and get in central banking and the problems with the money printer, a topic that Parker felt we had missed in the other episodes of the series. Now, we all know in 2008 what the central banks did with the printing of money to try and help us get out of that economic crisis. And at the time, the amounts being pumped into the economy was unprecedented. But in the last couple of years, in response to COVID, those numbers have been blown out of the water. And the amount of money being issued by the Fed and the ECB, the Bank of England, and every central bank around the world is quite staggering. So in this one, Parker breaks down what this means, the issues it causes, and why Bitcoin fixes this. And he brings the heat as ever. This time, is absolutely no exception. So if you enjoy this, or you've got any questions or any feedback, you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at did.com Okay, over to Parker. Parker, hello, mate. Good to be here in Houston. In Texas, again, where you, uh, you're you recruiting a lot of people trying to get me to move to. Everybody should move to Texas. <laughs> Everyone should move to Texas. All right, good to see you. Uh, have we done this in person before? I don't think so. We've only ever done remote.
0: Yeah, I think we've done like three or four,
1: but they've all been remote and it's good times. to be in person. Yeah, man. especially here. Yeah, yeah, in my hotel room.
0: We're uh, setting up the Bitcoin uh, meetup in Houston, so we're gonna be heading there from here and you know getting to do it in person. This is this is we've done a few Bitcoin meetups in Houston, but they haven't been well organized. So this is gonna be the first one that is really well organized and uh, goal to get all the. Energy folks here in Houston, um, oil and gas industry that are starting to really turn on to Bitcoin mining to get more engaged. So.
1: And we're going to be heading to
0: Dallas tomorrow. Dallas tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, Bitblock boom this weekend. So it's, Te- it's Texas week. We had BitDevs in Austin last week. And then we had uh, PlebFi uh, slash Austin, mm-hmm. uh, which was a hackathon, Bitcoin and Lightning hackathon over the weekend that Jeremy Rubin and Buck Perley organized. So a lot of things going on in the Bitcoin
1: world in Texas. Yeah, man. Texas and Bedford. <laughs> <You>
0: know, <laughs> that's it. why you're moving to, to Texas at some point in the future, to, to be determined.
1: Well, I'll tell you what the plan is. I'll tell you what's going to happen. I've been talking to my uh, audio producer, Danny, who's been with me now for two and a half years, crushed it for two and a half years. We've never actually met because he's based in Australia, but he is English. Uh, we're meeting in New York in September. We're going to do a week together of producing shows in person. And then what we're going to do is early next year, we're going to do a month in Austin. So we're going to come out, we're going to get an Airbnb or something, set up a studio, and we're going to do a month of shows, get as many people in as I can, fly them in. It's, it's like a test run. You won't have to fly them in. They're ordered to be in Austin. Not everyone I have to fly a few. But like, it's, it's definitely, a it's a test run for Austin, like basing the show out of Austin. That is in the plans. Like a lot of things are changing next year, which means I can do it. So anyway, man, good to see you. Uh, everything you're doing. For Bitcoin in Texas is amazing. Um, we don't want to have all the Bitcoiners in Texas because we want to decentralize people. So let's not get everyone here. Bitcoin is going to be glo- globally adopted. So no matter how many
0: Bitcoiners I get uh, in Austin, more are created every day. Uh, so just naturally, as a as a function of the way that Bitcoin works and the way that Bitcoin's adopted, that that that's not a real concern. But uh, you know, right, right now, here and now, and a lot of people working on Bitcoin creates a really good environment to have people kind of around each other talk about ideas, um, and that's how the network grows. And I think we're gonna
1: birth a Bitcoiner right now. Alex here, who's uh, coming in to shoot this for us, he's not a Bitcoiner. He's learning about Bitcoin right now, so we're gonna birth a Bitcoiner during this, hopefully. So as we're talking, I'll also be specifically red-pilling or orange-pilling, Alex. Yeah, we're gonna orange put Alex in on this one. So, all right, so we've done a series, and it was meant to be three shows. based on your Gradually in the Suddenly series, which is excellent, everyone knows how good it is. So much great feedback. And then at the end of the last one, you said you wanted to do one more. You wanted to talk about the money printer and the central banks, et cetera. Uh, I also have been at a time when I'm really rethinking everything, uh, personally in terms of my show and where I'm going with things and uh, what I, you know, my role in supporting Bitcoin. Um, so I think there's a good cross section here. Uh, we talked about a few things beforehand. I told you I'm thinking of selling my Bitcoin. We're going to have to go into that uh, because you're going to tell me not to, and I'm going to tell you why. But uh, there's a lot happening, so uh, I'm here with a blank sheet. I've got my notes. I'm going to need to know the why before I
0: convince you out, so I need to know what I'm, I'm working against. Well, well, we'll come to that. Let's,
1: Like I said, it's a blank sheet. All the notes are on the computer, but I don't like to have a computer in front of me when we talk uh, in person. It's, uh, it's just finally distracting. Let's talk about the money printer um, because you feel like that's a part of the series we didn't properly get into. So if you want explain why you want to get into that bit, and then we'll start digging.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that there, there's an idea that we that we didn't talk about, which was uh, kind of a core part of one of the pieces that I wrote, which is Bitcoin is one for all. Um, I think oftentimes there's a question about, you know, is, is Bitcoin too concentrated with you know amongst a few people, and how will 7 billion people... Be able to adopt it, and will be fair. Does it make sense to have a a fixed monetary supply, and what are the consequences of that? I think you know one of the other things that is apparent, kind of within our country here in the United States, but also just globally, is that in many ways it feels like the fabric of society is fraying, Um, and just a bit, just a bit, and (laughs) that pretty much on every single issue, you know, kind of. Current issue, whether it's pandemic and COVID and response, um, or whatever the next one might be, or if it was Trump, that, that every single thing that that happens is a lightning rod, um, and that you know, for all of the ills in society, people are always looking to political solutions. Um, left has its views of how to properly orchestrate society, and the right has its views, and. The way that I really think about it is that that any political differences exist at a, at a fundamentally higher level, and that the actual economic structure and the monetary structure being broken is a lot of what is creating not only the division, but also why either political parties or political end of the spectrum, whatever views are proffered politically, can't actually solve the problem because... The root problem that must first be solved is one that's monetary in nature, um, and that that if we look at you know again, regardless of political views, when Trump was president, trillions of dollars were being printed. When Biden is president, trillions of dollars are being printed. Um, the only thing that enables the governments to run massive deficits is the central bank printing dollars to support it, or whether it's in Europe, the ECB digitally creating, printing euros. So wherever it might be, it's, it's the same story. And that that when people look at these problems and try to switch people in power and wonder, you know, it's that definition of insanity where you keep doing the same thing and expecting different results. Only in this case, it's both parties taking their own um, crack at it and getting the same solution and it's not working. And that in my view, that is fundamentally a function of the real problem. like There are political problems, and political problems need to be resolved. But it is so much driven by, if you think about the orders of effects, it's you have to fix the money first, and then there will naturally be a lot of problems that are solved as a derivative of that. But you're not going to solve, and this is kind of a key key part of the, the post that I wrote, is that the actual monetary structure that exists, that is centralized, the Fed, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, the Bank of England, PCOB, in China, that actual structure is what causes imbalance. And and oftentimes, people talk about the growing wealth inequality. Um, And and I would fundamentally argue that that expanding wealth gap, that exacerbation of wealth extremes, is principally a function of central banking. and that when you remove that fly from the ointment, that's when things can begin to heal, but that they can't begin to heal until the actual monetary structure, because the inherent problem in our entire economic system that's causing that is the current system in place, and that Bitcoin is the option to opt out of that system into um, something that um, affords equal rights amongst everyone, And that ultimately, when people can start to save in a form of money that holds its value, then that is what will actually cause um, balance to be restored. And so one of the things that I try to to lay out and we can discuss is people talk about wealth inequality, wealth inequality, wealth inequality. Well, inequality is perfectly consistent with economic balance, right? If, If you're Steve Jobs and you create the iPhone and a billion people use it, that person should be holding more money than someone that hasn't contributed value to anybody else that's the function of of an economic system working and so it's important i think to to lay out from from that start that it's not so much you're solving for economic equality what you're solving for is economic balance Um, and what you get in the fed system or the ecb system any central bank system is it definitionally takes a world of imbalance allows that imbalance to be sustained and then be exacerbated and that's what Bitcoin will really solve. And then once it solves that core monetary problem, then we can have the debates about, you know, what is the role of government and the scope of government? There might be certain things that, you know, people disagree about, but everyone should really be focused on fixing the monetary structure
1: because everything else will fall apart if that falls apart. Is wealth inequality the problem itself, or is it the second-order effects of wealth inequality that certain... uh, Certain people get pushed out of being able to afford certain things like the squeeze of the middle class that people talk about. Is that actually the the issue rather than people seeing a visual difference in wealth?
0: Well, I I would think that it's, and and I think that's one of the the problems with the the language is, when everyone says wealth inequality, it's it's these wealth extremes, right? And in every economic system, with balance, you're going to have a distribution. You're going to have inequality. And the goal, and so I think it's important that we, that when we when we talk, um, kind of in those terms, it's kind of understanding that you know, kind of that distinction. It's basically there is a wealth imbalance. There are uh, in a way that is not sustainable. There is too few kind of interests or people controlling too much of the economic share in such a way that if the Fed didn't exist or the ECB didn't exist, that. That imbalance that is allowed to be sustained—it's like if you take a structure where you think about—it's like—and I, and I go back to the 2008 financial crisis. You take in because I think it's helpful to define what I mean by imbalance. You have a system where it has unsustainable home values, and those home values are starting to come down and correct. And people who have savings in dollars and are on the lower part of the economic structure, the house is actually becoming more affordable as that's happening. But What the Fed basically does is they step in and they say, nope, we're going to, we we need to target asset prices or we need to target price stability because it's core to their mandate. What that does is it's like as that imbalance is self-correcting in the economy to be eliminated, it takes this unsustainable imbalance and says, nope, we're going to stay right here. And we actually, we have an economic view that is we need asset prices to be driven higher. And then what happens is, you were in a position of imbalance. You the, the economic structure was saying, we need to right size this. We need to we need to eliminate imbalances. And that's what happens naturally as, as prices fluctuate and prices correct. And so when we when we talk about wealth inequality, I really think about it as inequities that are created by as a function of the monetary system. Not so much, you know, is wealth inequality a problem? Like wealth inequality is a very natural state. It is if you've acquired wealth you in a system that is fair, that's not manipulated on the monetary side, in that world, imagine a fixed supply of 21 million Bitcoin. If you got a lot of Bitcoin, that means that you definitionally delivered a lot of value to others. Uh, and if someone delivered less value, then you
1: will ultimately have fewer Bitcoin. Um, that That's not necessarily true right now, because some people could hold a lot of Bitcoin because they've exploited the current system. Are you talking about in the future.
0: You, well, I'm, I'm talking about as, as, a, as an economic system, because I yeah. think about Bitcoin as an economic system, that as 7 billion people adopt Bitcoin, that in, in the Bitcoin system, in order to get Bitcoin, you have to transfer value to some other existing Bitcoin holder. Mm-hmm. Right? There's 18.7 million Bitcoin that exists today. There will only ever be 21 million. So if anyone that's coming to adopt Bitcoin, whether they've profited off of the the flaws in the legacy system or not they have to transfer value to somebody else to acquire that and there's some there's always somebody willing voluntarily on the other side saying here i'll give you my bitcoin for this price right um, the, the key difference between and, and when i think about that conceptually it is in order to get bitcoin you have to deliver value on the free market it's, it, you know kind okay of regardless of who principally has Bitcoin today or not. That that key concept that if you were to acquire money in this monetary system, you must deliver value to somebody on the other side. In the Fed system, 80% of all dollars that have been created have been created since 2008. So in the dollar system, that is not fundamentally true. You can either get dollars by delivering value to somebody else and be compensated, or the Fed will step in and allocate dollars. And what it ultimately does is it gives people that have benefited from that imbalance a second bite at the apple, and a third bite at the apple, and a fourth bite at the apple, because necessarily, if there is imbalance, and you come in to stabilize asset prices, you're you're stabilizing assets that that have benefited the people from the system being significantly weighted or skewed versus
1: from people that are trying to rise up in the economy that don't have assets. It's essentially fighting against the Fed is fighting against what uh, Ray Dalio talks about. I did an interview recently with. Uh, Dylan Leclerc because he uh, wrote an article uh, referencing that video, the, the famous uh, Dalio video, which I'll include in the show notes. But about allowing the system to self-correct.
0: Correct. Yeah, and that is, wrong. and it, I think about money because it's it's the economic good that coordinates all other economic activity, essentially. And I think that the most fundamental aspect of it is. And this is something that um, there's there's a few pieces by Hayek. We've we'll likely mentioned them on, on past podcasts. Um, one is the use of knowledge in society, where it talks about the role of a price system. And everyone, if they kind of walk around their their daily lives, the, the price of food at the grocery store, the gas at the gasoline station, everything in life, there's prices, and those are communicating economic signals. Um, and they're and they're taken for granted, but they they only exist because the world Converged on a single form of money, and that, and that as the world converges on a single form of money, a price system begins to emerge from that. That once the world converges on one money, they're essentially all pricing their own goods and services, and that is how they then communicate economic value. It's this idea that that value as a concept is inherently subjective. Money is is, is one of the key parts that helps us objectively evaluate or value things that are subjective in value. And so if you start to think about it that way, that, that, that it's concept of price and changing prices, which are ultimately um, an aggregate of human preferences. Um, if I demand a lot of gasoline, either someone has to go get more gasoline or the price of gasoline is going to go up. Uh, but then as that as that price changes, it sends a signal to the rest of the market and people might decide, hey, it's, it's really beneficial if I'm in the business of helping get gasoline to the gas station. Um, But then as more people do that, then then prices come down because supply has increased because people reacted to price signals. And so it's this idea that as prices change, that is the entire process of an economic structure finding balance. So if I go back to the 2008 financial crisis example, it's like when the housing prices are coming down, that's, that's the market economy, all the people in the market saying, Actually, I prefer other things, or I need dollars for other things, and housing needs to come down because it is in imbalance. And when the Fed, so that that is that is actually the market taking an imbalance and trying to eliminate it. It's like the preferences are changing, and we only know that as a function of prices. Um, and so that I think about money as that governor. It's basically as as the as as people speculate and pursue essentially games of trial and error to say, what do other people value? They, they are doing that based on changes in prices. That's dictating, that's the input to their behavior. Um, that's how, it's essentially like a cheat sheet. What are the things that I want to pursue? Whether it's podcasting, well, if I do this, I can, you know, people will pay me X. Well, your only concept of X is because you know what everybody else values in terms of what those prices are. You see other podcasts, you see an opportunity, so you follow it. Then, if a bunch of people get into podcasting, and it's not going to be valued as much, but maybe, maybe as a whole it is, but only the the, the top people that have the highest quality get paid. And so it's, but it's, but it, it's that appreciation for as prices change that guides individual decisions, and then as they correct, it it's a very natural function that takes it's a, it's a very precise function, not necessarily precise, but it's a function of taking imbalance and eliminating it. To, to find an equilibrium or balance. What the Fed does is it takes those imbalances and as that housing market comes down to correct, it says, no, we can't have that because our system, we, we need stable prices, quote. And, and that's, that's where it's, it's, the, it's the exact opposite of what you would want. It's there is imbalance, we need to find balance. And in Bitcoin, because you can't manipulate the money supply you can't manipulate price signals, and if you can't manipulate price signals, then what that means is that whenever imbalances exist, they will far more quickly correct because there is not a exogenous market force to step in like the Fed and print three trillion dollars to keep prices right where they're at. It's working. In, it's like if, mm-hmm. if 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 the market economy is swimming downstream, the
1: the Fed is in its actions are causing everyone to turn around and swim upstream, basically. So it's absolutely essential to have a fixed money, monetary supply. It can't work without this. I, I would say that if there is a mechanism
0: that is exogenous to the economy, which is the Fed printing money, right? There's a current set of dollars that exist, and everyone's out there working and pricing their goods and services in dollars, and then the Fed can just unilaterally change the game and double the money supply, then that currency that underpins the economic structure and the economic coordination function, it, it, it basically sends false price signals. And when you have false price signals, it causes economic distortion and ultimately economic imbalance. And that, that, that literally is the root of, of these, these massive wealth extremes. I think about it like, so it's not to say that you need a fixed money supply. It, there is a reality, and, and it might be kind of subject for another day, there is a reality that a fixed money supply is the optimal, optimal supply of money, one that doesn't change because it eliminates the supply of money as a function that's creating distortions in, in, in the function of price setting, which, which are preferences which are constantly kind of creating imbalances and then eliminating imbalances, creating and eliminating. And so... Um, I, you know, I'd say it's a, a reframing of the, you know, kind of comment. Like, your question would be, no, you don't need a fixed money supply, but you do need one that can't be created arbitrarily.
1: So, consistent. So, you're, I know some people would uh, disagree with this entirely, that um, any form of, like, inflation in the money supply of Bitcoin is c- completely not acceptable. But I think what you're saying is, like, if it exists, as long as it's consistent, if, that, that would be fine. But it's the arbitrary ability to go in and just suddenly have a massive change because somebody wants to make that decision. I would well, I would frame it a little bit differently. Yeah. Okay. That the the ability to arbitrarily create
0: money um, okay. is is a, is a fundamental problem. It's, it's it's the worst possible scenario that you could ask for if you were evaluating, you know, five options of money. One where somebody in a far off land can come in and immediately double the money supply. And and most people in the economy have no concept of that, right? 99% of people don't know that the Fed printed $3 trillion or what the implications will be. That's the worst end of the extreme. Now, it's not to say that... um, So it's a difference between the ability for arbitrary money to be inserted into the system by people that that are very few in number versus the other end of the spectrum, which is having the predictability of something being fixed. It, It would be to say that... If you had a form of money where you could reliably count on the fact that it only increased increased one percent a year that would be better than the fed being able to come in and print trillions of dollars but money is ultimately an a b test Mm -hmm. so so if there were money that increased one percent a year and there was this other money that had a fixed money supply each individual economic actor would be rational to opt into the form of money that didn't have some marginal amount of inflation because Ultimately, that inflation um, is exogenous to the actual functioning of a monetary system or a price system. The, the price system, what you're learning from it is relative value, value of individual goods, value of money itself, what, it, what, what its purchasing power is. But then also literally how many cars you have to build to make to, to buy a home, or how many apples you got to produce to buy a car. that the information that's actually of value, is is that relative price signal and the changes in prices. So it's so it's the fixed money supply is the polar opposite of one that can be arbitrarily increased but that anywhere in between those you're always going to be making ab decisions and each like if you don't you can't think in aggregates and think what's best for society you have to think about what would an individual do if they had the opportunity to opt into a form of money that that couldn't be debased because that debasement does not benefit the holder of the currency. And oftentimes people will think about, oh, well, there's really rich people and people have made millions of dollars, you quote millions of dollars, that they just own Bitcoin, a fixed share of a, of a money supply uh, that can't be altered, that they, they immediately think to wealthy people. And they think that system, doesn't that system benefit them? And one of the the tweets that I included in my piece was um, a, a, a quote from Vitalik Buterin where he, where he said, the idea of owning a fixed supply of all the world's money inf- you know, indefinitely into the future seems very oligarchic. But, but the, the thing that's actually true is that be, by creating that environment, you can essentially ensure the same rights for the poorest people on the spectrum versus the wealthiest people on the spectrum. So if you are somebody in Nicaragua, the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, and you deliver some good or service and got paid in Bitcoin, you have the same rights within the Bitcoin network as Paul Tudor Jones in New York. And that in the legacy financial system, the, the billionaire class has massive preferential benefits from the way that that structure is created versus, hey, most people, to the fact that, that everyone is incentivized, that if you can just opt into a system where there cannot be inflation. That means that the, the value you've delivered to the world um, can't be artificially or arbitrarily debased based on somebody else's incentives. So in that regard, it effectively levels the playing field mm. by ensuring equal rights. Um, because the other scenario is, well, what is the mechanism by which inflation isn't introduced? Who gets to do that? By what function? Um, clearly, something like well, I don't want to say clearly because most people don't understand gold. But you know, if we're comparing gold to the to the current version of central banking, you actually have to go mine gold out of the ground. You got to perform work to do that. You can't do it arbitrarily. It costs something to do. Uh, in the case of the Fed, it costs literally zero, zero to print tr- three trillion dollars. It costs zero
1: to print ten trillion, or zero to print twenty. Do you ever, do you ever think about the trade-offs though? Um, and some of the benefits that exist by having the money printer. So, uh, in times of crisis, uh, the governments have the ability to you know, put their hands into the the money printer and and be able to you know, help society or help uh, groups of people as a whole. Or do you ever think about? And I'm only doing this not because I you know I fundamentally believe the net benefit is to have a fixed monetary supply, but do you also think about the fact that there are certain things that maybe have advanced quicker because of money printer maybe medicines advanced quicker, as with everything else, because there has been more money that's been able to be put towards those things. Do you ever think about that, the trade-off? Like, do we lose, yes. or do yeah, we lose? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, I-
0: I'd say, kind of addressing the first part of that, or the last part of the question first, it's like, how would Venezuela feel, right? Like, they might have accelerated some advancement of certain technologies that could be in hospitals, but then, if your monetary structure breaks down and you can't deliver energy to the hospital and, and it's unsustainable, then did you do any economic good? If you if you ended up in a worse spot, ultimately, and so I would argue that that you could look at individual kind of technological advancements and would say, "Hey, we actually got that quicker, whatever that might be, um, medical devices or whatever, you know whatever it might have been." But there is a reality that that the end game of printing money if people if the government can print trillions of dollars there's a very fundamental like truism I would say which is the central bank can control the supply of its currency it cannot make people value it and if I know that the central bank can print trillions of dollars at zero cost um, I will stop valuing that as will everyone um, because they're, you know, not everyone has to be rational economic actors, but ultimately their, their time is scarce, their time is limited on earth, and they're not going to go put in 10 hours, 14 hours a day of contributing value to somebody else for a unit of currency that can quickly be debased at, at zero cost. Um, and so, so I think that the, the right perspective on, on that latter question. Is thinking about it from the contract of you might have accelerated something, but if you can't use it into the future because it's unsustainable, it's ultimately no good.
1: But is there anything we lose where you're like, okay, there is a benefit to having the, the printer here, but you know, as a net, as a net effect, it's not worth it. But is there anything you I think the, the only benefits are short term? Okay.
0: That it's trading uh, trading the long term for the short term, which is which is not a great winning strategy. Yeah. It's going to make things feel good. On a very short-term interim basis, and it's going to cause massive economic disruption over the long term. Well, so, and, and, I would, and I would look at it because when you when you get into the fundamentals, you're like, oh, well, we got um, you know all this great medical device equipment because we made money basically costless. And it's like, but we have these math, massive wealth extremes, and the poorest people on the economic structure can't can't access it. Like, how great is that? Um, and so it. I would say, in no scenario does, um, f- for fundamental reasons, because I acknowledge that end game and I acknowledge that it that it ends in ruin. Um, that that we wouldn't ever want to trade the short term or or accept a short term ven- benefit at the cost of the long term, because in this scenario, the the long term event of a currency hyperinflating is cataclysmic. And it's also, when we look back at history, it's the marginal cost to produce any good is where its value will trend. So, um, and I think when people start to get into, you know, the, the economic fundamentals of saying, why, if I go to work and produce value for somebody else, can the government just decide to award money to somebody else because they think, that that's what we collectively, you know, at least our country, and believe Britain as well, is founded on the idea of an individual, at least mm-hmm. the United States is. Um, and, and that it's, we're not trading the interest of the individual over the collective. We, I mean, we ultimately are. But it's also that when you think about organizing people, that if you allow each individual to make their own decision, that, that the aggregate of those will add up to, um, to a greater collective whole too. But you have to just focus on the individual and their individual rights, and that is something that you're stripping from them when, when you put the government printing press in the hands of 12 people sitting in Washington, D.C. that are entirely disconnected from people in Kansas and people in Texas and people in Florida and people in California. Um, and so when, when, when I bring it back to maybe the first part of your question, which was, is there, you know, what about times of crisis? And 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 that's a question that I I honestly get quite often, um, but I also think that it that it's a false dilemma, because there's nothing about Bitcoin and there's nothing about a fixed money supply that prevents the ability of a government to step in in time of crisis. There's also nothing that effectively prevents a central bank. The only thing that has to happen in a in a system where there's a fixed money supply, if you want a central bank or you want the government to be able to spend a certain percentage of the economic share, is you actually have to fund it. So you either have, you, you, like in a world of Bitcoin, you can have a central bank. You can have a lender of last resort. You would just have to capitalize it. The only way to capitalize it would be to actually capitalize it with Bitcoin. Uh, the way to do that would be to tax people. That, that way you put it all out in front on the table where you say, this. we think that it's important that we have these pools of Bitcoin or pools of of monetary capital to be able to save for a rainy day. And we want these these public institutions to allocate it. That is not what you have today. You have the worst kind of that. You don't tax people. You you print it in a way that they don't actually have representation over it. Um, and, And that is the fundamental problem. It basically strips the people's right to decide how they're going to be organized.
1: Next up, I talked to Parker more about central banks and money printing. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. And we're going to kick off here with Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017. And that Nano S I bought back then, I'm still using now. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And if you're an Android phone user, you can connect that to your NOS and manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, it's Gemini. Now, I am using them exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. But as I said, I have not sold a single stat through Gemini since they came on as a sponsor but I am using the app to buy the dips. And I've also set up my dollar cost average with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand and start investing all through one clear, attractive interface. So if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. Also, let's talk about Revolut. Now, been talking about this for a few months. So many of you are aware, Lloyds TSB, my bank for 25 years closed down all my accounts. They clearly don't like Bitcoin. And when Revolut heard this, they got in touch. They said, Come on, Pete, move over to us. And you know what, it could not have been easier to create an account. And most importantly, they like Bitcoin, and they want to make it easy for you to transfer to exchanges. And Revolut are offering 20 pounds or $20 to all new customers that complete three card transactions. It only takes a few minutes to set up. You can create a card and add it to Apple Pay immediately to get that cash in your pocket as soon as possible. And you know what I would do. I would just convert that money straight into Bitcoin. Now, if you want to find out more, just please head over to Revolut.com forward slash WBD. That is is forward slash WBD. And this week, we finish off with BlockFi, who recently announced the launch of their BlockFi Rewards Visa signature card. Now, for customers in the US who are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way to earn Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on all card purchases with no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards on every purchase. Not just that, but you can also get 3.5% back in Bitcoin during your first three months of card ownership, and you get 2% back in Bitcoin on every purchase over $50,000 of annual spend. Now, if you're interested in finding out more, then please head over to blockfi.com, which is B L O C K F I.com. What do you think's changed though? Because when I look back at, uh, certainly in the UK, like economic history, you know, there are times where the governments have run a surplus and times they've run a deficit, but felt like they were just trying to balance over time. But it feels like this last decade, two decades, the idea of balancing the 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 government's books seems to have gone out the window. It's just like we can run a permanent deficit and that deficit can grow to any level we want. I mean the debt ceiling has no meaning anymore in the US. It's just it was a thing and now it isn't. What do you think's changed? Because one of the things I I, I think about. It. I've mentioned it a few times. I, I wonder if it's got anything to do with the fact that uh, we are now a global uh, economic system, and uh, the first country to blink loses.
0: No, I would say that it it is. It stems from the financial crisis. Um, the financial crisis happened, though. You know, in the eyes of the Fed or central bankers all over the world, or politicians over the world.
1: But that was a global financial crisis. Sure. But, but,
0: but something fundamentally changed from 2008 going forward, and that it was as the world in their vo- mind was collapsing, like if the Fed hadn't stepped in, every Wall Street investment bank would have, would have filed for bankruptcy. And in many ways, because of the way that the Fed system works, the, the banking system has, has gone from, rather than just being another sector of the economy, it's basically centralized where everything has to go through the banking system. And, and I think the perspective was, well, if the banking system collapses, everything's collapsed. But the reality is there's actually a real world economy. There's actually infrastructure that exists. Um, but what happened was, in response to that financial crisis, the Fed printed $3.6 trillion. It was crazier than anything that they've ever done. And because of the way the system is actually constructed and because people don't understand it very well, what they saw was trillions were printed and we didn't see hyperinflation. And they didn't understand why, but they then assume, well, we can do this forever. Um, they can't do it forever. Um, the reason why they can't do it forever is that that fissure that was opened in 2008, it never went away. Um, and it was actually... That fissure, which was an unsustainable credit system, which dictates, and, and it and exists in every major developed economy. It's not specific to the United States, that the central banks and the governments have to continue to print money to prop up the credit system. Otherwise, that system will collapse. If that system collapse, it will create instability. But again, that is trading the short term for an adverse long term.
1: But it feels like that could be happening now.
0: Right, but, but that, that the thing. That but when they saw mm. actions being taken, trillions of dollars being printed, and they they didn't immediately see the the inflation show up, they thought, ah, we can do this, we can play God. Um, but yeah. it wasn't so much that they could actually play God; it was that they didn't understand the cause and effect of what the Fed was doing. Why do you think they did get away with it?
1: So like economically, like economically, why, why they
0: didn't see hyperinflation? The reason is that at the time of the Great Financial Crisis, this is just specific to the U.S., yeah. there was about $52.5 trillion worth of dollar-denominated debt. In the banking system, there were only approximately $350 billion. So every dollar in the system had essentially been lent out more than 150 times. <laughs> and when they... And also because of that dynamic, because the size of the credit system, which had only gotten to that point because of 30 to 40 years of every time there was an economic slowdown, think about every time there was an economic slowdown, think about that as economic imbalance. And when the Fed would step in to put more dollars in, it would prevent that imbalance from being eliminated. It would just kick the can, slow, kick the can down the road, but, but more than that, it would actually cause an imbalance to grow. Yeah, bubbling up under the surface, massive wealth extremes where you don't have, you know, a, an economy that can function in a symbiotic way, um, where to, where too few people are contributing and owning the productive assets of society, and the people on the lower end economic, end of the economic spectrum just continue to fall further and further behind. Um, that whole thing came to a, a a tipping point in the financial crisis. But if you think about that dynamic of Fifty-two and a half trillion dollars worth of dollar-denominated credit, and what I reinforce for people is, you know, oftentimes people hear about the financial crisis and they feel about they hear about, you know, strippers having five homes and CDS and CDOs and synthetic mm-hmm. CDS, whatever it might be. That's not derivatives. That's not unfunded pension liabilities that people oftentimes quote about the federal government. The fifty-two and a half trillion is just vanilla debt, you know, or at least what existed at the time. So think mortgages, student loans, credit cards, federal debt, state debt, local debt, corporate debt, fixed liability, fixed maturity debt. At the time of the financial crisis, it was $52.5 trillion. There were only $350 billion. So when the Fed steps in and inserts $3.6 trillion from 2009 to 2014, the amount of debt, the system is still far too many dollars short. So they're essentially buying credit instruments to put new dollars And essentially what that does on a very short-term basis is it delevers the credit system by putting more dollars in that can support all the debt. That is why that that combination of factors is why, because the credit system is so large, it is the marginal price setter. And when you put those dollars in, all you were doing was putting the dollars in to ensure that the credit system didn't immediately collapse. Um, But then what happens is That inflation starts to appear, and the purpose of putting those dollars in is to allow the credit system to expand. Because that credit system is so much larger than the base money supply, that is how inflation ultimately comes through. So today we're at at a point where in 2008 the credit system was 52.5 trillion. Today, approximately, I I did not check the the last quarterly report, but it's about it's about 85 trillion. Yeah. Um, so as the credit system expands, it always needs more dollars; otherwise, it will collapse. But it is that amount of debt, which which is essentially future demand for dollars, that creates short-term stability in the price of dollars, because this, the entire system wide is, you know, today still eighty trillion dollars short, um, and so that that. That debt system or the credit system is what creates relative scarcity for dollars such that you can put in another trillion and the whole thing doesn't immediately collapse. But as you do that, each individual person starts to figure it out slowly. They figure it out initially for those that don't know that the Fed's printing money through their local prices. Cost of bread goes up. Cost of cars go up. Which we're seeing now. We're seeing a lot of evidence of that now. Um, but, but But it happens... Through the credit system, up until the point where everyone figures out that it's actually a game of musical chairs, and it's not like you know five people walking around with only four chairs; it's like twenty people walking around with one chair. Um, and and that that what happened in 2008 was governments, central bankers looked at it. They fundamentally did not understand. It. They do not understand that dynamic. They don't understand why. It didn't immediately cause prices to double or triple. When you, you know, effectively the Fed increased the money supply by like eight times over 16 years. They didn't. You know, people looked at it and said, "Well, we didn't see inflation, so therefore, like, let's keep going, boys." Um, And and ultimately, everyone who has any common sense or a lick of common sense would look at it and say, "Um, "This is crazy. It's not going to end well." And then what the the political elite look at it and say, but we had to do it. And I think that if you're actually in the market dealing with the implications, then you will look around and you will say, it was crazy, it's not going to end well, and it's not going to end well. And that as those people in the market look around and say, if the governments keep doing this, I, out of self-preservation as a, and as a survival instinct, I have to find a path to opt What's well, politically not popular? What's politically not popular? To
1: solve these financial problems. Well, I think it's, it's politically palatable to kick the can down the road. Yeah, of course, because you want to win your next election, keep right. your seat, you know, keep your party in power. It's, it's not going to be politically popular to turn around and say, you know what, we can't print any more money. You know, we're going to go through a massive economic shock. We've all got to ride this out together. It's not politically popular. And it's absolutely not. You know, kind of one of the things that I did on my path to
0: Bitcoin was I went back and read the transcripts from a lot of Fed meetings, and that you start to understand the psychology of, of people in power. And uh, you know, there there might be a scenario where these people are just incredibly evil and they're just trying to fuck over poor people. Like that's a scenario. It's not one that I. I don't buy that. I I don't buy that either. But I also uh, do very kind of firmly hold that. They do not understand the consequences of it, their actions, and you can't judge people by their their intentions, but by the results of their policies. And that that when I when I was reading those transcripts, there was a particular quote from Ben Bernanke. I believe it was in two thousand eleven. And in two thousand eleven, the financial crisis was in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. The Fed had inserted about one point six trillion dollars into the system between. 2009 and, and middle of 2011 so they had you know increased the the monetary the base money supply in the banking system by like 5x um, that things started to 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 recede back to like it was basically the world was going back into another financial crisis and there was the european debt crisis it was like that it went from recovery to shit was getting bad quickly And Ben Bernanke had a quote in, in, I believe it was like an August 2011 Fed meeting, that one thing I reiterate for people is that the the Fed transcripts don't come out for five years. So what was happening in 2011 doesn't actually come out until 2016, so nobody knew about this at the time. But he basically said, paraphrasing but close to verbatim, um, that he was willing to accept that 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 monetary policy wasn't the solution and that the problems were you know were a combination of fix, fiscal and structural but quote we must be palliative um, like and he was basically saying i can recognize that we're not the solution but we must do something and that there is a reality that, that common sense people have that that inaction is an action if you keep doing something and it's not turning out well for you You don't just keep doing it. Um, And that in the case of the Fed, the problem is that they keep doing things that don't work, but they also have the power and ability to keep doing it in a big way to say, yeah, we're going to create a trillion new dollars today, or we're going to create three three trillion over three months. Um, And that everybody else has to, to face the consequences, and that if anybody knew or had that knowledge, that they would opt out of it if they could. Not only would that not be how they behave in their current lives, because they're constrained by market forces and and the consequences of trial and error, but they they would they would say stop, like let's reevaluate. I can't keep you know plowing money into this thing that, that 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 loses money, or I get fired from the same job five times. I can't be pursuing this job. They'd have to stop and reevaluate. In the Fed's world, it's like nope, we can just keep going. Um, And and that the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is that we just eliminate that ability. We eliminate the ability for people um, outside of, you know, essentially outside of an elected government, because technically the Fed is a private entity, from screwing with our money. We basically said, you know, anybody who opts into Bitcoin says, I am willing to opt into a system voluntarily where nobody gets to print money, including myself. But That is a better alternative by opting into a system, which is the Fed system, that is somebody gets to print money, it's just not me. Uh, And I don't know who it is. And I don't know why they do it. Uh, And they might think that they're acting in my best interest, but I'm the person that decides what my best interest is. And then when you add up all those individual decisions of hundreds of millions, if not billions of people doing the A-B analysis, which one of those two things do I want to opt into? Do I want to opt into if I contribute value to other human beings and they they pay me in a form of money, that somebody else can arbitrarily devalue the amount of work that I put in.
1: Yeah. So if you came, so if you came this out, I mean, I'm, I'm asking if you have, I'm sure you have, but how this plays out, because I can imagine for a long time we, we're, we're going to be in this dual position of sovereign currencies and Bitcoin. Um, you see a future on, on a certain timescale where perhaps we end up not having the Fed or the ECB and government changes, but have you gamed out how that actually happens? Is it a shock to the system? Is it a slow collapse? Is it, how do you see this playing out? Because uh, it's, 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 a, it's really hard to imagine a world where we don't have governments controlling the money because we've always had that in our lifetime and my parents' lifetimes. So have you gamed that out? I mean, it, timing is the hardest thing to predict.
0: Yeah. I, I would say that I try to go down to micro-decisions. Yeah. Individual decision points, economic incentives. Every individual has the opportunity to contribute value into the world for the benefit of others and to determine what form of money they want to store the, the value that they're not immediately spending. It. Um, and they have an incentive to choose the best form of money the the form of money that is going to give them a combination of range of access to, to purchase things from other people, as well as assurances that that money will be accepted by people into the future. The greatest assurance of that is that the value that's stored in it is held over the future. That creates the greatest incentive for other people to adopt it. Um, and so the way I can't Game out exactly timing. I could I could postulate time, time on time. Time's not important.
1: More but, more the what actually happens.
0: Yeah. So I would think about it behaviorally as as more people as knowledge distributes as more people learn about Bitcoin as more people learn about money for the first time. Like you said, money has always been a function of government. For for anyone who is alive today, it is true that that has always been the case, and for the first time. That is not the case, or it's not um, the only option. And that the more people that evaluate that question, the more that will opt in to Bitcoin. Um, That there is, if all value is subjective, there are objective ways to evaluate what is going to be more functional as money. And that it's a very clear, in the A-B test between Bitcoin in the dollar, Bitcoin in euros, Bitcoin in yen, Bitcoin and gold. In my view, because of, of, of properties that have emerged in Bitcoin, it's, it's fixed supply, ability to, to transmit it over the, the communication channel, the ability to divide it into very small or large units, or aggregate into large units, that, that in that A-B test, it, it's like 99 out of 100 will choose that. Um, but adoption... Just because I have that perspective uh, doesn't mean that, it, that that the path to adoption isn't a hard one, that people have to pursue that um, on their own interest, that, that you'll never be able to explain Bitcoin to someone that, that isn't curious about knowing about it. But there's also a reality that as more people adopt Bitcoin, it becomes easier to adopt, not just because mm-hmm. there's more infrastructure, even though there is, um, but not just because there's more educational content, mm-hmm. it's because more people have looked at this equation, stared, been perplexed by it, and then come to understand it. You know, oftentimes thanks to your podcast. But then as that happens, there's a virtuous feedback loop. As more people have adopted Bitcoin, the value of the monetary sh- system is larger. It can afford more capital to build more infrastructure to make it easier to use. And more people can contribute to content around it, to package ideas. Those ideas, over time, just as a function of the market, determining what is good content versus what is bad and it being refined, becomes easier to earn. But then at the end of that day, when there's 100 million people that have Bitcoin, number 100 million and one is a lot easier to adopt than when there were a million people and the million in first.
1: Well, Greg um, Foss said it to me recently. He said, Bitcoin is a better buy and thirty-five thousand dollars. I think I was surprised when said it. Um, than it was at a thousand dollars. Obviously, if you bought it a thousand dollars, held it up to thirty-five thousand, that's great for you. But as a, a as the, if you're talking about the safety of an investment in it, it's a safer bet at thirty-five thousand and a thousand because there's more participants in the market. There's more people yes. you can uh, pay for things from or receive from, and it's just a whole bigger infrastructure. Yeah, and, and there's also. Um
0: a function that, as Bitcoin is adopted by more people, um, its value rises. The value of the monetary value of a monetary network that has ten million people is less than the value of monetary that has hundred million people, and it's not just ten times more valuable. Um, and, and and that is because um, the number of potential trading partners doesn't just go up linearly. Yeah. Um, it goes up exponentially. Like the telephones. Yeah. Um, and so so, but also. Fundamentally, as more people adopt Bitcoin, the network itself becomes further and further decentralized um, at at many different layers. And that as that happens, the credibility of its fixed supply, of the the core rules that ensure that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin, they're not static. Um, There are a core set of rules that don't change. But as more and more people adopt Bitcoin, as the network becomes more decentralized, it becomes functionally harder to change those rules. Mm -hmm. So the credibility... Of Bitcoin's fixed monetary policy of twenty-one million gets, you know, more and more credible when you know when it's hundred million versus ten million, and, and it will be when it's a billion. Um, and so, those those are the incentives that, that that dictate kind of how this happens. But but I also think that you know, kind of to that question of sequencing, it's while the timing's unpredictable, there is a way to think about you know if there's 365 days in a year and there's a certain number of people how many people come to learn about bitcoin every day if there's more content about it if the price is going up if it's talked about on news if congress is is starting to you know g- give it credibility by saying we need to legislate certain yeah. things more people learn about it so the actual distribution of knowledge accelerates and the propensity to adopt because the hurdle rate is now lower as more people adopt, it will accelerate. And what will ultimately happen is people will be looking around and they will start to convert things that are monetary substitutes into Bitcoin, like bonds, stocks, real estate. There's a lot of things that people have started to store their wealth in uh, that's intended to be passive as a way to outstrip or outrun the central bank printing money. When they realize that they can opt out of that whole game, they will sell those assets for Bitcoin because they found a superior alternative to, to do what they were always intending to do. As they do that, as they start to sell bonds to buy Bitcoin, like why own a U.S. treasury that yields 50 basis point when the government is 2 or 3xing the supply of currency, that essentially will, will accelerate, uh, it will impair the credit impulse at the same time that, that it, it's inducing the credit system to contract, which because it's as, as leveraged as it is, it will, it will induce um, basically the credit system to collapse, not because of Bitcoin, but because the system itself is is so fragile and so unsustainable. And, and as that happens, it will actually accelerate the, the, quote, need of the central bank to print more money to, to keep the system propped up. And so it will actually feed on itself and accelerate, whether the critical mass of Bitcoin holders is 10% of people or 20% of people, it's unclear. But I think psychologically, once it gets to that point where it's like 1 in 10 people have adopted Bitcoin or 2 in 10, um, 1 in 5, that that things begin to, to really accelerate, that the that the, the marginal cost to adopt Bitcoin and the uncertainty about it becomes lower and lower and its value proposition is inversely
1: related to that. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting because it feels like feels like we're a lot closer to that point. And, uh I thought we would be during this run. Like, I didn't expect to see companies coming and buying the amount of Bitcoin they were. I certainly didn't expect to see a government uh, making Bitcoin legal tender, which is, we're what, two weeks away from that? So September the 7th that happens. Um, I think that is going to be a really interesting, uh, essentially a project for Bitcoin, which see how that plays out in El Salvador, see what actually happens to the country. I mean, I mean, how much are your eyes on that as almost like a testbed for, you know, a lens into the future of what Bitcoin can mean for a country where it is legal tender there, where it is essentially, you know, I, I guess taking taking M away from their own government for the things they can do. I mean, look, look, we know they don't have their own currency as it is, but it's putting them in a very different situation. Yeah. and I, I mean, I think that, you know, it will do wonders for El
0: Salvador, ultimately. I think that in terms of the grand scheme of Bitcoin, what it what its most important function is that that it normalizes it, it kind mm-hmm. of re-anchors what is this? Because um, you know, one brave soul or a group of brave souls were were willing to to be early in that. But the same thing is true of virtually everything. So Michael Saylor, the first person to come out and say, I'm shifting over my corporate balance sheet to Bitcoin, to the tune of 90%, to the tune maybe now it's like 95%. Yeah. Right. That, that there, there is always, like definitionally, somebody has to move first, right? And so I, but I do agree with you that um, that I wouldn't have expected, you know, a company like MicroStrategy to come out and and do that as early as they did, or El Salvador. Um, but to that question of it feels, it feels functionally different today than it did twenty four months ago, mm-hmm. and and a critical thing happened, which was. There was a massive imbalance in the credit system. People attribute it to COVID. COVID might have exacerbated it, but when the Fed came in and printed $3 trillion in three months, that took people from being a frog in a pot of water that slowly boils versus throwing a frog in a boiling pot of water. (laughs) Um, and, And that it was everyone had been lulled to sleep by kind of The the decade that that happened after the financial crisis, and we were returning to some level of normalcy, and then when that fragility started to reappear, um, you know, that day in March, March twelfth, when the Dow Jones was down ten percent, high yield and investment grade credit were both down twenty five percent in a matter of of a few weeks, Um, and then the Fed came in and basically said, "We're going to print all the dollars in the world. There's, There's no limits." Neil Kashkari got on. Uh, 60 Minutes, and said there's infinite amount of cash at the Fed, there are people in the market like Michael Saylor, the president of El Salvador, um, Paul Tudor Jones, whoever it might be, that otherwise would not have woken up out of a trance. And they were like, holy shit, this is real. It it was the Band-Aid being ripped off. And now that they're paying attention, because they can't not be, because it was like they were just punched in the face versus, you know, Death of a Thousand Cuts, um, that now each incremental action that the Fed takes, they, I think they printed $150 billion in June alone. That was nearly 2x, or maybe it was $160 billion. It was 2x the height of the prior QE programs. Each time they do it, people are more cognizant of it, and they know now that there's an alternative, or at least more people are figuring out that there's an alternative. And so next time the Fed steps in and prints a trillion dollars, you know, and that it won't be long before the next trillion comes in, in my view, that, that everyone is at the front of their seats, and they're actively searching out. And at that same time, the, the propensity to, to adopt Bitcoin is becoming greater and greater because more people have crossed over that path. They've looked at the equation. They've had to f- ask the fundamental questions. And while there is a lot of speculation, the signal that they find is that 21 million, and they figure mm-hmm. out that that is the solution to this very problem that's staring at them square in the face, which is their government printing money, putting their business at risk, putting their families at risk, putting their livelihoods at risk. Because they know that it will end well and they're not willing to sit back and just accept
1: somebody in a far-off land fucking up their lives. So do you think much about what this means? Because I've talked to you about one of the things like on my mind at the moment is governance um, and political instability and... The polarized society politically and every uh, specific issue. Um, uh, and I'm trying to, I constantly trying to imagine like a world, a Bitcoin world, but also just a world where people are a bit more cohesive. How do you have uh, anarchists and libertarians and people on the left, on the right, and apolitical? How do they all kind of coordinate and and work well together? And like Bitcoin is a, is a tool for this, but I can't get my head into the place where I think, well, look, what will this world actually look like? Because. Um, a certain amount of power taken away from the government with this, um, they become a provider of services, which we all know is you know, something which would be uh, a preferred uh, uh, way the government operates. But I can't actually picture this world. Like, what is the role of government? Where, how will it exist? What, what does it mean for police forces? What does it mean for you know, medical services? What does it mean for fire services? What does it mean for? I don't know conservation or protection of parks or protections of areas of natural beauty, like all different things that governments do like I know this shit a lot of the things, but there's other things I think I think they do to do better they, Or will be done better centralized how do you think about all that because it feels like a really different world and i know, don't don't even know if it'll happen in our lifetime, but I expect it will you think it will yeah so well, the good thing is we'll get to see and then we can come back and talk about it
0: uh, but that the, the way that I would frame it is that whether it's all the division and the role of government, it's like, I think most, you know, kind of keying in on an individual kind of problem or circumstance that, that I think everyone agrees on, which is there are exacerbating wealth extremes and that is a problem. What people disagree about, you know, again, there, there's a lot of things that people are divided about and a lot of people have problems about, but like just keying in on that one. About 50% of the people in the United States don't have, like, $500 of savings, right? And I think, you know, whether someone's on the left side of the spectrum or the right side of the spectrum, it's, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, you know, any logical person that would look like it say it's not. And they, now they might not understand the extent of the problem, and it's actually their own problem because it's going to result in economic instability, or we already have economic instability, and everyone has an interest in, in finding economic balance where the extreme comes in is what the right solution is and and both the, pro- the the beauty of it as well as the problem is it's it's not something that they can fix that the only way that they can then come back and have a discussion to 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 think about problems at a higher level is once the money supply gets fixed that the, the solution is not political it's both the the blessing and the curse um, because Curses! They all think that it's you know they whoever thinks that there's a political solution to something, thinks that there must be one. But I, I, I think the the analogy that I use it's like you know cleaning the windows, trying to clean the windows on the hundredth fl- floor of a skyscraper when you know the bottom ten floors are like Jenga a Jenga set with with only one square left. You know what's the what's the purpose of working on the hundredth floor? to fix a problem that is so, so much higher up in, in the kind of order of effects versus fixing the foundation. Uh, and, and that the, the blessing is that the foundation has been fixed. Everyone else just has to figure it out, uh, in their own time. And so I don't think that it's so much, what is life with, like without government? And it's not that we're not going to have parks and it's not going to, we're not going to have, you know, EMS and fire. It's that, we're just going to have to pay for it via taxes. And that when you do that, um, that you'll find out what people actually uh, value in government performing. Because government either performs the function or somebody else's. If it's mm-hmm. of value and people value it, um, that that they will figure out a way to to get that value delivered. Um, and that there, there are ways, and I, I think that, at least my own personal philosophy is, there's ways that people decide to organize themselves. Mm -hmm. We have a republic. If somebody wants to go out, because I think at at a fundamental level, it's like, go out now, even if it's, you know, go through the the thought experiment of, you know, ignore that there's the United States. You know, go out into the middle of the country, find a river and set up an encampment. And then people come along and they want to come live under, you know, abide by your rules, or you set a certain set of rules, someone wants to benefit from some sort of economic structure that you've put in place. You know, a, a water system, or a waste management system, or a telecom system. Somebody, if they want to come into your economics, they've got to play by your rules. And, and they, but you also tell them how those rules get set and how they change.
1: Um,
0: there's nothing about Bitcoin that fundamentally changes that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just means that, you know, the government can't spend money that it doesn't have. And that through the function of having to actually pay for things via taxes is if they if, if the government right now, Congress, if they came out and they said, hey, Americans, we're going to tax you $5 trillion to pay for this budget, it would never get done. They'd all be fired. That's why they have to print. And, 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 the, and they do that because they can because they don't actually have to do the unpopular thing, which is to tax and pay for it. And any common sense person would say, well, shouldn't it be fine that… Yeah, you know, they can't print money to to pay for all these things because how do we know what we actually value if they're just printing money to do it? Like, put the bill on our table mm-hmm. and say, "Hey, we want to go do this thing over here. We're going to need to to tax you to do it." And people would say yes or no. And and there will be an equilibrium. It will just be far smaller than what it is today.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's um, I mean, it's fascinating to watch um, and. It's funny, when I, I talk to different people involved in Bitcoin about different things, you know, with you, it's primarily about the role of money. And, and you know, it's the first interview we ever did with that. But I, I think we should move on and talk to this point, because I was saying to you before that uh, I'm, I've been thinking about selling my Bitcoin. So we should cover this, because I know we've Bl- got a, Blasphemy. We, we've got Blasphemy. And I know what you're going to say, because actually you need to hold Bitcoin, have skin in the games, certain things like that. But I think we might even have had this conversation before, I, I don't think so. I thought we had. Maybe. Maybe. Um, because I've been thinking about this a lot. Thinking about governance, thinking about uh, what a Bitcoin... And I feel a certain sense of responsibility with producing content. And sometimes I wonder if I produce content which suits my Bitcoin, right? So uh, I, my last year I was talking about the Willy Woo shows, which are all about trading and making more Bitcoin which are really fascinating shows. I learn a lot about it. But actually, at the same time, I don't feel like, are they serving? Is this about serving the good of everyone with Understand Bitcoin? And I'm repeating myself, but my interview with Weinstein really impacted me. I have not been able to stop thinking about that question. What are we doing? Um, And I know Bitcoin Twitter isn't the real world, but it is fighting, yelling at each other, memes, being mean, you know, laser eyes, Whatever, and I'm a hypocrite myself sometimes. Uh, and I was thinking, how could I be as objective as possible trying to be a semi-interviewer slash journalist in doing this? And I was like, I think I need to sell my Bitcoin. Yeah, I, I
0: would think that you have to, you have to look at them as, as two fundamentally different actions. Yeah. Which is, um, because there's also the alternative, which is, well, maybe I should not produce content for Bitcoin. Right? because because if you start thinking about it that way I have two decision points and they, and they' they're totally independent of each other mm. there's produce content for Bitcoin not produce content for Bitcoin or holding the best form of mine that's ever existed versus not that those are those are two independent decisions so uh, and they' are, and they they're independent of each other that if you say okay imagine that I did not, Report on Bitcoin.
1: There's no scenario where I sell my Bitcoin and don't make Bitcoin content. Well, no, no, no
0: but, but, but I'm saying you have to go through the th- yeah. thought exercise to be able to understand why you're, you're drawing a, a false dilemma for yourself. We're, we're doing
1: your first principles here, aren't
0: we? Yeah. That it's, you don't produce content for Bitcoin. What is the right economic decision for you as an individual and for you as your family? Um, if you don't hold money that's going to preserve its value into the future, and you determine to hold Euros or pounds and your family becomes impoverished. Was that a good economic decision? And so you have to, you have to think about that fundamental question. And then when you come back and say, okay, now I'm producing content. Am I am I really being objective about, you know, how Bitcoin works or doesn't work or my perspective of it? If you, if you, on a personal level, have made that decision as an individual to say, okay, ignore the fact that whatever I do in the world, I need to store my value in a form of money that is actually going to be functional in the future. Otherwise, the scenario is ruinous for you and your family. Then you're like, well, if I come to that personal decision, that that's what's best for me and my family, then there is nothing that exists at a higher level that is um, that is in conflict with a position that you take, mm-hmm. that you're not, you know, you wouldn't be sitting up here. And I and I think about it by what I do. Building a Bitcoin company that helps people secure their Bitcoin, producing Bitcoin content, having 90% of my wealth, plus in Bitcoin, I am very incentivized to know about whether or not I've made the wrong decision. That's fair,
1: yeah.
0: Right, um, because ultimately. I, you know, each of us has to be making that decision. If we're wrong, we're the ones that are most incentivized to know that we're wrong and to, to get the hell out as quickly as possible. Maybe it'd be a little bit unethical if I came to that decision that Bitcoin is not the best form of money that's ever existed and sold my Bitcoin and then told everybody else about it. Fair, yeah. um, but so long as you hold that core understanding of Bitcoin and that that, that fundamental view is right, then. Then it's a qual- then, then it's a question of quality of your journalism. Am I being objective? Was did something come up that gave me a concern and I didn't say it because I want more people to to view it.
1: And that is happening.
0: Well, but that, but that but that but that's a question of objectivity. And then if you're conscious of it, then it's be more objective. Not sell your Bitcoin. You're conscious of it already, so you, so you've, you you hmm. you've figured it out. It's just a matter of changing your behavior. Hmm. Well, not, not selling my, your Bitcoin. Not selling my Bitcoin, though. Maybe a little bit. You can do. You can. You can hold your Bitcoin and be be more objective if you if you need to be. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah. I think that you know the, the other side of it is that when I talked about the way that Bitcoin is adopted, that if I kind of step out of your role and into mine, if I through my company with my team with our team, if we build a piece of infrastructure that makes it holding Bitcoin more secure, that people can 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 store their wealth in a way that they can sleep at night and know that it's going to be there and that it can't be lost, the actual network increases in value because more people can look at it and say, oh, I can have a, a larger percentage of my wealth in Bitcoin versus any other asset. Not, that doesn't mean over 50%, but that the more secure it is, the more I'm willing to store in the network, that those two things are correlated with each other. Um, so as I'm out there as a team, or as we're building as a team that infrastructure, it's actually making the currency itself more valuable. Not in totality, but because now there exists a piece of infrastructure as is you know, another company building some other piece of the infrastructure that is not static, that as the infrastructure gets better and better, more and more people get brought along to benefit from it. That it's not zero sum. And the same applies to content. That if the fundamental is true, which is not the case with altcoins, the founders and people, they they benefit, they become super wealthy, and all the other people get wrecked, Mm -hmm. right? In Bitcoin, if you're building infrastructure, it literally allows for other people to more securely access those same benefits. Technical people might have been able to do it five years ago, now we're making the same thing that technical people would do five years ago available to, to normal people that aren't as technical. Um, so, so that value transfers onto them. Same thing exists with content. If if you're working based on the right fundamentals that, that Bitcoin is functional, viable as money, it's the best form of money that ever exists. I hold this as a as a core understanding of the way that Bitcoin works vis a vis any other money. And then I'm producing content about it. Then you also are 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 contributing that value by because it would be actually the opposite if you sold your Bitcoin and you we're writing about, you know, producing content about, you know, how good or bad Bitcoin is, it would kind of be incoherent. Mm. You would be like a profiteer that's just that you would have the wrong incentive. You would just be doing things to, quote, make money to get the most eyeballs, not necessarily, you know, aligned to contribute. Because if you're producing bad content and Bitcoin, people will turn you off. Right? It's, it's, It's a game of trial and error. Um, and that there's a very high market signal for that
1: so yeah well and and that that signal turns up in strange places because it's not the signal isn't on bitcoin twitter that's the interesting thing it's actually in my emails that that's where the signal comes that would, my it's one of those interesting things my content is driven by who writes to me and what they say, not what people shout on Twitter about, which is why recently i've been saying actually i'm going to start Start talking to people who are politically on the left a bit more because I'm getting a lot of people coming in just asking me questions similar to the questions I asked you a moment ago about what happens about like conservation and things. Uh, not to say that that I am uh, a lefty myself, or not to say that like I'm trying to push Bitcoin in a different agenda. But that's those questions are being asked, and I think that's actually also a function of Bitcoin's growth this year. The amount of people has expanded to. You know, we've got all the nerds and the weirdos and the crazies now involved in Bitcoin and the radicals. This is this is permeating the mainstream, and it's going to be people on the left and the right, which, by the way, are different where you are in the world. Uh, like in the UK, we talk about the left and the right. It's very different from here in the US. But there is a lot of demand now from people who are, I think, are a bit more of the mainstream. Yeah, I do, and I think that there are pro- there are people who will have those questions of like, well, how do we know this whole fixed supply thing
0: is a good yeah. good idea, right? And, and those people are going to have to go through their own rigorous thought processes, and they're gonna come in with a firmly held belief that this collective view of the world is a better world. Um, as they get into the functional viability of money and how it works and what its consequences are, they will come to the conclusion that the Fed system has fucked over poor people. Yep. Now, they're, in order to get there, they're gonna to have to you know, work through a lot of biases that the, that the opposite is true. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is the point. The Fed will come out and say, you know, there's a quote from Jerome Powell where he's like, you know, there's a lot of things that are, you know, he was basically specifically asked. Um, and I don't think that Jerome Powell, like, you know, is, a, I mean, I think that his policies are terrible, but it's a function of, of the Fed more so than any individual. But he was asked, like, there's certain people that think that QE led to an expanding wealth gap. And his response was something where he basically Um, stuttered along and said there's a lot of things, there's a lot of theories about what's causing an expanding wealth gap. Monetary policy isn't one of them. Um, Now, when each individual thinks about their own actions and their own incentives and then multiplies that out by every other person that exists in an economy, uh, they will figure out that the Fed's function takes a world of imbalance, which definitionally says there is a skew that is unsustainable and allows it to continue to exist into the future. And it exists like you know, a thousand pounds on people's shoulder who are on the lower end of the spectrum that are trying to to to, to rise up, and certain people are capable of doing that, but the the, the deck is stacked against them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that Bitcoin will ultimately bring people together. That once they can come in and understand, hey, like w- we agree on this as a monetary structure, then they can actually figure out w- what it is they disagree on. And and I, and I believe that there will be a lot less. One of the one of the um, I was thinking about this political divide and how it's really important that Bitcoin not be political because uh, it isn't. It's it's, it's monetary. Uh, things of political organization exist at a different kind of functional societal level. But that it's... Um, that liberals are going to love Bitcoin when they figure out what it will do for people on the lower end of the economic spectrum uh, and that, that have uh, lower income levels. And Democrats are going to hate it. And that... Conservatives are going to love Bitcoin when they figure out what it's going to do for um, government deficits and Republicans are going to hate it. Um, And that we're going to figure out, you know, who are the the real people and who are politicians, basically.
1: You orange-pilled, Alex. You in? You in Bitcoin? We started you on the journey. I think we should get some barbecue or some food anyway. Let's do it. Anything we didn't cover that you wanted to cover today? No, I think we covered it all. Any any uh, any
0: questions anything that you need me to talk you out of and are,
1: are you... Uh, no I'm just in a, am just in a phase and I do this and I think what it is is like uh, three or four times in my life I have self-sabotage because I've got to a point I'm like I've kind of it's very selfish and personal level' It's like okay, I've, I've peaked. this is easy turning up every week, having a conversation with me. If I interview you, I need five, six main questions and then a few responses. And you wax lyrical about Bitcoin and I'm fascinated. I just sit and I consume it all. But it's got too easy. I'm like, I am like, what's the next level now? How, how do I level this up? So it's just a period of I'm very transparent as people know. Like I'm happy to do it on camera. I don't have to like hide who I am. I'm just saying I'm going through this moment. I've been a little bit disillusioned recently. And I'm just thinking, what are we doing? Uh, I think yeah, you need to step out of the what are we doing and get to your audience and see how it's delivering value to them. But the thing is, they'll they'll usually reply when they, and they'll usually on something like this. I'll get 10, 20, 30 emails. I'll say no, you're doing a great job. Carry on, carry on. But it's like I'm not sure if that's the right answer. Uh, so I'm just I'm just thinking about what's next. Where do we go next with this? You know, where's yeah, where's the next? How do we go from a million a month to ten million? Like what is. And what is the conversation that needs to happen? Um, it's on my mind, but like this was very helpful. I mean, I mean, one, one thing to think about, and it might get redundant
0: for you, but you know, when the next nine million people, or when if, I, I think that there's probably ten million people that have any material exposure to Bitcoin, I've seen estimates of 150 million total people in the United States that um, you know, when let's assume that there aren't ten million people listening to Bitcoin podcasts, when they are, they're going to need to hear the same things. I right, know, And that people probably transition where, you know, once they get Bitcoin, they probably consume less podcasts, but then there's going to be 10x more people that, you know, don't necessarily want to go back and, and listen to a podcast from um, two years ago. And you might be in a position of not wanting to recreate the same old content where it mm-hmm. feels redundant. So the question is how you continue to create a, a medium that... That communicates those messages and puts the same type of people out so that more and more people can understand it. And I think the goal ultimately being that, you know, should, you know, I think Michael Saylor put out a tweet where it was, you know, how many hours did it take you, You know, did you, have you spent studying Bitcoin? Where like the goal should be it takes fewer and fewer man hours to understand Bitcoin, mm-hmm. to, to get to the point to understand why a fixed money supply of 21 million is a superior form of money. Um, that it is credibly enforced and that because it is, that's gonna obsolete all of the money. And that figuring out how short a time frame, and that's the way that you align your incentive with your with your guest, because once that's done, once everybody in the world has Bitcoinized, you don't have to talk about Bitcoin anymore. And maybe you could stop before then, but yeah. but that but that your incentives are aligned with your guests. That if, if your goal is to help people understand Bitcoin in a shorter period of time as possible so they can get on with the rest of their life. Because the benefit of is once you have a form of money that can't be debased, at least in my experience with a lot of people in my network, you actually think about money, you worry about money less. You can get on with your life. You can focus on doing the things that you actually value. Learning about Bitcoin is only fun until the point that you get it, and then and then there's a period thereafter where you want to tell all your friends, but we'll get beyond this point. It will likely be in the next 10 years where it's just everything's Bitcoin. we got to go back to solving, you know. Other problems. Yeah, that we'll other, solve the yeah. most. You know, it's not that it's the most important because there's a lot of things in life that are more important than money. But if we don't have a working economic system, if we don't have money, that the quality of life lives that we kind of live today are going to degrade significantly, and that's what we're working the interest to to preserve. All
1: right, well,
0: I'll stick with it for a while
1: anyway. <laughs> Man, I always love talking you, to you, Parker. You
0: should start uh, billing in Bitcoin
1: to further align yeah, your interests. Do you know what? I, again, I, it's another thing I've thought about. Um, I did it, so I've done it a little bit, like two sponsors uh, paying Bitcoin, one paid a whole year in advance, back in February, great time. Um, that becomes a problem if at the end of this year we go into a bear market and we have drawdowns. Like I've had it before where I've had sponsors paying Bitcoin and I've held but Bitcoin. But just align
0: yourself with your your your, uh, your customers. Just take Bitcoin, you've done very well, you're, you're dealing with these internal, and you know, am I objective?
1: Being paid in it. It's a tricky one because I still have a lot of bills to pay in dollars. Well, pounds, actually. But look, it's on my mind. I think it's more I'm I'm like, I think I've built like 10, 20% in Bitcoin. I might go up to like 50 or whatever. But it's definitely something I'm going to think about. Cool. We need to go and eat. I'm hungry. All right, let's do it. Man, good chef here. Okay, what do you think of that one? Do you enjoy that? Now, listen, I've known Parker for a few years now. And I'm always talking to him. always picking his brain. He's constantly steering me in the right direction and trying to get me to move to Texas. So it was finally good to sit down with him and record one in person and to do that in Texas as well. Now, while I was down there, I also recorded with Stefan Levero. So keep your eye out on that. That one will be dropping on Wednesday. Anyway, listen, I hope you enjoyed this one. And as ever, if you want to get in touch with me, you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at did.com or jump into my Telegram channel. And also, if you want to support the show, if you've been a long term listener, and you're like, you know what, Pete, I like you. I want to help you, just head over to Apple Podcasts and go and leave me a review. Hopefully you think the show deserves five stars. Maybe you're like, know what? Pete, your show's shit. I think it deserves one star. I don't care. Just go and give it a review. I look at most of them. You know, I, I get my feedback from them. So please go and leave a review. Outside of that, if you have any questions, you want to hit me up, my email address is hello at what did.com or you can jump into my telegram group. And as I said, I'm off to El Salvador. I'm off to make a film, which is going to be very cool. Looking forward to getting that done, getting that pump together that out. All right, have a great week, and I'll see you all soon.